a boat salesman was shot to death 37 years ago while sitting inside a pickup on a dirt road near DeLand. Detectives found out the shooter was a hired hitman from Chicago, and the salesman was killed so that three men could split a life insurance payout of $153,000. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the latest development in the killer clown case from 1990. The suspect was arrested last September in southwest Virginia, and the South Florida Sun Sentinel is reporting that DNA from hair samples contributed to her arrest. Then later, I'll discuss the 1981 murder of Robert Clemente, a 34-year-old boat salesman who was killed after picking up a man he thought was a prospective buyer. It turned out to be a hitman hired by Clemente's former boss. My special guest for that segment will be one of Clemente's co-workers. But first, I'll discuss a shockingly tragic story out of Gilchrist County reported by our sister paper, the Gainesville Sun. Two deputies were slain Thursday while sitting inside a restaurant. It's a story that made national news. That's coming up next. And for anybody that can hear me, the sound of my voice, and they can see my my face on their TV, that Sergeant Ramirez and Deputy... Lindsay were the best of the best. They are men of integrity. They are men of loyalty. They are God-fearing. And they loved what they did. And we're very proud of them. Two Gilchrist County Sheriff's deputies were shot as they sat inside a Chinese restaurant Thursday afternoon in downtown Trenton, located about 30 miles west of Gainesville. The victims were Sergeant Noel Ramirez and Deputy Taylor Lindsay. The shooter, 59-year-old John Hubert Hynote, also was found dead near the scene. He died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Gilchrist County Sheriff Bobby Schultz held a press conference hours after the shooting. It was an emotional one. But I want to focus on them. Not only were they the quintessential deputy sheriffs that you'd want, but they are quintessentials, children, husbands, boyfriends, brothers, law enforcement brethren that anybody could ever want. I knew both of them personally, and I can sit here in front of all of you and tell you that I loved them. It was determined that both deputies were shot from inside the restaurant around 3 p.m. They were on duty and in uniform. There were no indications, based on the preliminary investigation, that the deputies even had time to return fire. The shooter reportedly walked up and shot them, and then went to his car and shot himself. Bill Cervone, the state attorney for the 8th Judicial Circuit, which includes Gilchrist, called the shooting inexplicable in an interview with the Gainesville Sun. He said that people will surely want to know why something like this happened, but that question may never be answered. 
The shooting took place inside Ace China, located on State Road 26. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement is investigating. Trucks from national news outlets swarmed the small town, which has a population of roughly 2,000 residents. There are only 14 sworn deputies in the Sheriff's Office's patrol division, according to the agency's website. One resident told the Sun that such violence isn't expected to happen in small places like Trenton. He added, quote, We're a going-to-church community. We're all well-mannered. You never expect foolishness like this from anyone. Ramirez, who was 29, was survived by his wife and two young children. He was a seven-year veteran of law enforcement. Lindsay was 25 years old and had joined the sheriff's office in 2013, according to the Sun article. Schultz was the one who delivered the news to the men's families. Then he had to address the news with the public. You can never be prepared for something like this, but make no mistake, they're proud of their families. They understood when their loved ones pinned on a badge and they strapped on the gun that this was a possibility. Schultz said during the media conference that he didn't want to politicize the men's deaths, but insisted that Thursday's slayings were a direct cause of what he referred to as the demonization of law enforcement. He also called the shooter a coward. In a prepared statement, Florida Governor Rick Scott stated that Florida has zero tolerance for violence, especially against police. He also tweeted, quote, May God bless those who work to keep our communities safe. In a tweet also posted Thursday, President Donald Trump called Ramirez and Lindsay heroes and offered his thoughts, prayers, and condolences to their families, friends, and colleagues at the sheriff's office. Coming up, an update on an investigation I profiled on this podcast last October, the notorious killer clown case out of Palm Beach County. What do you remember of May 26, 1990? I remember that being one of the most terrible days of my life. That was the voice of Joe Ahrens. He was describing the day when his mother, 40-year-old Marlene Warren, was killed. Marlene opened her front door and came face to face with a clown who was holding a bouquet of flowers and a gun. Warren was shot in the face and died two years later. The clown got away in a white Chrysler LeBaron. An arrest wasn't made until September 26, 2017. That clown, authorities say, was Sheila Keene, the lover of Warren's husband, Michael. Sheila, who now goes by the name Debbie, was arrested in southwest Virginia, where she and her husband have lived for years. Debbie's husband is Michael Warren. Sheila Keen Warren was picked up while the couple was on a trip to see her mother in Vermont, according to the South Florida Sun Sentinel. She was handcuffed and placed into the back of a Washington County Sheriff's Cruiser. The video of her riding to jail went viral. 
She didn't shed any tears. She didn't look frantic or confused. She just looked deflated. She was one of the first suspects that detectives honed in on 27 years ago, as was her husband, who so far has not been arrested, but remains a person of interest. Marlene was killed in front of her son and a family friend. Here is that friend, Jeannie Pratt, who recalled what she saw while looking out the window that morning. I sat down to eat. There was a balloon and some clown coming at the door. Look at that clown. She was going to that door. She was excited. What came next was traumatizing to both Aaron's and Pratt. When your mother opened the door, did she say something? Oh, how pretty. Well, at first, we thought maybe it was a balloon popped, but when we saw her fall, we knew something was definitely seriously wrong. We had no clue what was going on. It was like the whole world was in slow motion. Those interviews were part of an hour-long 48 Hours episode that aired Saturday night on CBS. Media in South Florida, as well as Tennessee and Virginia, published stories last week announcing that the True Crime News Magazine was airing a show on the case. The Sun Sentinel published a story earlier this month stating that the Palm Beach County State Attorney's Office had released more than 2,800 pages of documents as part of a public records request. The Sun Sentinel reported that the testing of DNA evidence was the key component to finally cracking the case. Samples were sent to an FBI crime lab, and some matches were made to fibers collected from the Chrysler LeBaron that was suspected of being used by the shooter. The lab report wasn't available to the media, but an investigator's report in 2016 shows that Sheila Keene could be included as a source of those hair fibers. The Sun-Sentinel also reported that the documents included a statement from a former employee of Michael and Sheila Warren, alleging that Sheila, whom the employee knew as Debbie, got drunk and confessed to her once that she dressed like a clown and killed someone. Michael and Sheila Warren had owned and operated the Purple Cow, a popular burger restaurant in Kingsport, Tennessee. Sheila Keene had also worked for Michael Warren while he was married to Marlene and living in Palm Beach County. Warren owned a used car dealership, and Sheila was his repo woman. While on the job, she would arm herself with a 38 caliber handgun, the same kind of weapon used to kill Marlene. Authorities said the Chrysler LeBaron that was used by the shooter was actually owned by a rival used car business. But the customer who rented it got confused and called Warren's business to return it. That customer received instructions to park it on the street in front of the business and to leave the keys in it. That day it was returned was the same day it was reported stolen. It was discovered days after the shooting in front of a Winn-Dixie about eight miles from the scene of the shooting. Warren wound up doing time after being convicted in 1994 of racketeering, odometer tampering, and grand theft. 
All charges were related to his shady business practices. He's never been charged in his first wife's murder, but detectives told 48 Hours that he does remain a person of interest and that their case is not yet closed. No trial date has been set for Sheila. Her next hearing is scheduled for May 9th. CBS News correspondent Peter Van Sant interviewed Michael Warren for a few minutes, and that interview was included in the 48 Hours episode. Those few minutes were all that Warren gave him, and he spoke to Van Sant through the glass of his front door, which he refused to open. His statements are muffled by the glass, so I won't play them here. But Warren told Van Sant during the interview that he had nothing to do with Marlene's murder. He also said Sheila had nothing to do with it either. And had he ever suspected she had killed his first wife, he never would have married her. Coming up, the story of the 1981 murder for hire in Volusia County. My special guest will be Dee Dee Jorgensen friend and co-worker of the victim, Robert Clemente. DeLand boat salesman Robert Clemente was found dead inside a company vehicle on April 15, 1981. The truck was parked on a dirt road near State Road 44. The Volusia County Sheriff's Office reported that Clemente, who was 34 years old, had been shot, stabbed, and beaten. Detectives caught a break when a pair of mail fraud suspects from Chicago came forward with information about a murder in Florida. But a series of bad breaks followed. The gunman would later be given a low bail courtesy of a corrupt Illinois traffic court judge. Then a witness, one whose testimony was perhaps the most critical to the case, wound up disappearing for four years. And just when everything looked like it was about to be wrapped up, a Florida County Circuit judge dropped the charges of one defendant mere hours before his long-awaited trial was scheduled to start. But justice was finally served, for the most part, nine years after the killing. Robert Clemente's shooter was Chicago hitman Peter Ventura. The man who hired Ventura was Daytona Beach business owner Jerry Wright. The middleman was Jack McDonald, who for years had done business with Wright. Clemente, after he stopped working for Wright, was employed with Crow's Bluff Marina. He worked there for about a year until his death. I made numerous attempts to interview people who investigated the case, reported on the case, or who knew the victim. Either they didn't return my calls or they politely declined, mainly because the case was so old and the details were too fuzzy. But I did find one who agreed to take part in this podcast. Her memories have remained very clear. Dee Dee Jorgensen is the former wife of the owner of Crow's Bluff Marina. She worked with Clemente and knew him well. She said his friends called him Bob. His family called him Bobby. Here is Dee Dee telling me how Clemente's work ethic and emphasis on customer service were unmatched. First of all, he was just very good with the customers. He would listen to what their needs were, 
and he put him in the boat that they were all just very happy with. He he was very clear on all the paperwork on how much they were going it was going to be costing them. He just followed through on everything with the customer, made them happy. Came in with his paperwork. It just everything his transactions ran very smooth, and his customers were, would refer other customers to us. He got, and he got along well with um, all the employees. Everybody really really liked Bob. He was just one of those employees you want for your company. He was just a good representation of what we believed in, taking care of the customers first. Jorgensen was one of the last people to see Clemente alive. A man who called Clemente that morning identified himself as a prospective buyer. That customer asked Clemente to meet him in the parking lot of a bank in Deland. The caller said his wife and kids were headed to Disney World, and he wanted Clemente to drive him to the marina so that he could buy a boat. It didn't sit well with Clemente, and he let others know it. Yes, he was um, very puzzled why this uh, customer that called him that morning wanted to meet him at the Barnett Bank in, in the middle of the land in the parking lot there. He thought that was very odd. He said, why the gentleman doesn't want to come out to the marina? but stated that his wife and daughter were going on to Disney World. And he said, don't you find that odd? And I was, I think, I want to say, I don't know, I want to guess at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I said, Bob, I guess it is, but knowing he wants to make a sale, he was going to, there wasn't going to be any hesitation about going there. So before he met the gentleman, he came in and asked me, Dee Dee, is there anything I could do for you before I go in? And that's when he took my bank deposits and my payment for, at the time, the power company. Clemente was going to run an errand on Jorgen's behalf and then go meet the customer. Jorgensen told me that she remains guilt-ridden about not picking up on Clemente's signals. If she had agreed with him and urged him to follow his intuition and not go, maybe he would still be alive today. Hours later, Robert Clemente was found lying on his right side in the driver's seat of a black 1981 Ford pickup had the name of the company he worked for painted on the side. The vehicle was parked in the middle of a dirt road, and some footprints were found nearby. Jorgensen said she spoke to a man, a construction worker, who discovered Clemente's body and called the sheriff's office. Based on what he described to her, it appeared as though the gunman had exited the passenger side and walked around to the driver's side door, at which time he fired his 38 caliber gun at the victim. When he saw him up on the truck, he said the passenger side and the driver's side doors were open. He said he could see the passenger side door. He saw footprints come out of it and go around to the back of the truck. Some, somebody had taken a leak and then came around to the uh, the driver's side, which where Bob would have been, and he op- opened that door, must open that door, and you could see Bob inside the truck that had been reaching towards the passenger side to get out of the truck, and he saw Bob slumped over. So it looked like he was stretching he, toward the uh, passenger side to get out before he was shot. Get out, get away from who was ever on the driver's, outside the driver door, correct The victim was shot four times, including three times in the back. Detectives said the body showed signs of stab wounds, and there were indications that he had been struck several times in the head. 
In one of the pockets of Clemente's blue jeans was a wallet and address book. A detective called his wife. That detective wrote in his report that she didn't seem genuinely upset. It sounded more like she was acting upset. Jorgensen said Clemente and his wife were estranged at that time. Detectives also learned that Clemente's brother-in-law had attacked him and bloodied him a week or so before the murder. The brother-in-law used a two-by-four. Jorgensen told me that everyone had assumed a day or two after the murder that Clemente's brother-in-law was the lead suspect. They kept waiting for news of his arrest, but it didn't come. In separate depositions that were taken years later, two of the detectives in the case said they did look at Clemente's brother-in-law at first, but it was clear that he had nothing to do with the killing due to his ironclad alibi. For a little while, at least, detectives were stuck. Here is Jorgensen telling me how difficult it was for her and others who knew Clemente to not only have to cope with his sudden death, but the guilt of not having done anything to stop it, or even being worried enough to call someone when he didn't show up that afternoon at the office. Everyone just assumed that he was meeting another buyer or had somewhere else to go. Devastating, devastating to all of us, and especially the fact that um, we, we cared so much for him and then, then to leave him, you know what I mean, the whole day, the whole rest of the afternoon, nobody was concerned. And then to not know anything or how or why, you know, we were all questioned, but it was just, it was a mystery. A few weeks went by before detectives received a call from an agent with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. The call came from Chicago. Two men arrested on suspicion of mail fraud told Volusia County Sheriff's detectives they heard Peter Ventura talk about a murder he had carried out in Florida. The pair initially told federal authorities, who then made the call to Volusia. The lead detectives, Bernard Busher and Dave Hudson, went to work looking for clues linking Ventura to the killing. It didn't take long to find some. They checked local motels to see whether Ventura had checked in and discovered he had booked a few nights at the Boulevard Motel in Deland and then a couple nights at a Days Inn in Daytona Beach. He checked in using his actual name. Ventura had been in town April 10th through the 15th, and the murder had taken place the morning of the 15th. Ventura rode in a cab at one point during his stay, and that cab driver was interviewed by law enforcement. He told detectives that he remembered Ventura, who had told him he was from Chicago. Ventura was described in the media as a hitman, but he wasn't a very polished one. He certainly didn't know how to cover his tracks. Investigators learned that a money order had been sent to Ventura from a man by the name of Jack McDonald. It was transmitted to DeLand the day of the murder. Detectives also stumbled upon a motive. An insurance policy had been taken out on Clemente by his former employer, Jerry Wright. Jorgensen said she found out that while Clemente was working for her husband, he was still receiving workers' compensation benefits from his previous job. Wright was set up to receive a sum of $150,000 if Clemente died. Detectives were easily able to link Wright and McDonald because the pair had done business together for 25 years. 
Wright was just two degrees of separation from Ventura, and McDonald was the conduit. In June of that year, Ventura was picked up in Chicago, and McDonald was arrested in Daytona Beach. Wright was not arrested. Authorities needed more information from either Ventura or McDonald before they could charge him. They expected to get that at trial. Ventura was jailed for 30 days. He was held without bail. Volusia detectives were ready to extradite him 31 days after his arrest. But Ventura had a bail hearing scheduled on the 30th day. The judge, who normally presided over traffic court, wound up setting bail for the first-degree murder defendant at $30,000. Ventura only had to pay 5% of that. Once he posted bail, he fled. Detective Busher testified in his pretrial deposition that the judge who set Ventura's bail soon came under investigation himself. Chicago authorities told Busher that the judge accepted a bribe in exchange for Ventura's minimum bail amount. That judge died before he could be removed from the bench. McDonald remained in jail as authorities scrambled to find Ventura. Hudson missed Thanksgiving with his family so that he could stake out Ventura's wife in Chicago. Ventura never showed. McDonald was released in December 1981. Defendants must be tried within 180 days of an arrest unless they waive their speedy trial rights. If not, they go free. Ventura's disappearance meant authorities didn't have enough evidence on McDonald to move forward. They needed Ventura's statements. Due to double jeopardy laws, McDonald could not be charged again in connection with the Clemente murder. But he would not be able to put it all behind him. McDonald was embroiled in a mail fraud scheme, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison in the spring of 1983. He was granted 60 days to get his affairs in order. Then he was expected to report to federal prison in Illinois in June of that year. But he never showed. He was a fugitive until his arrest in Atlanta by the U.S. Marshal Service in September 1987. He agreed afterward to testify against his co-defendants in Florida. That same month, Ventura was located and arrested in Austin, Texas, and Wright was arrested in Volusia. All three men were in custody, but only two were going to be tried for Clemente's murder. Even still, it was comforting to local officials that nobody was going to get bonded out of jail, only to go on the run again. Ventura had an arrest record in Texas, Colorado, and California, but this arrest was certain to be his last. When he was caught in Austin, Ventura was living under an assumed name, and he was operating a small business. Hudson discussed the circumstances behind Ventura's capture during his deposition. Hudson told attorneys, quote, I know it's not probably unknown information that Pete was fond of little kids, basically little boys. He would get young boys and young girls to sleep with him. Apparently he and this boy were having that type of relationship, I would guess. 
The boy got mad about it because Pete owed him some money and apparently was knocking him around here and there a little bit. So the boy went to the Austin Police Department and said that this guy is really Pete Ventura and responsible for a murder in Florida. Law enforcement swooped in to arrest Ventura as he was leaving a burger place. Ventura was tried in January 1988. He admitted through his attorney to being in Volusia when Clemente was killed. But he insisted that he was only in town to help plot a fraud scheme, not a murder. The media eagerly covered the trial of the alleged Chicago hitman. The DeLand courtroom had extra security, and the metal detector was so sensitive it would go off at the slightest detection. That even included the foil wrapping inside a pack of cigarettes. McDonald testified for the defense. By this time, according to media reports, McDonald was suffering from prostate and pancreatic cancer. The photos taken of him, which I found in the News Journal archives, show him to be very pale. While on the stand, McDonald gave minute-by-minute accounts of helping Ventura scout some remote places where Ventura could kill Clemente. He said that he and Ventura met up at various places to hammer out the details. Then McDonald described how he sat waiting in his car near State Road 44 for Ventura to show up after the shooting. McDonald also described how Wright was going to collect half of the $150,000 sum while he and Ventura would split the other half. Wright was saddled with debt and felt like he needed the money. Jurors took 90 minutes to convict Ventura. They later voted 11 to 1 to recommend a death sentence. Wright was up next, and he was scheduled to be tried in September 1988. Instead, Circuit Judge Michael Hutchinson, the same judge who sentenced Ventura to death, ruled in favor of a defense motion to drop all charges against Wright. The judge decided to do so on the day jury selection was scheduled to begin. Hutchison said prosecutors waited too long before charging Wright. McDonald had actually given federal and local authorities information on Wright beginning in 1982. He gave a sworn deposition the following year. Later that same year, Wright was indicted, but it was under seal. McDonald fled, and prosecutors never verified records to establish the validity of his accusations against Wright. That meant Wright couldn't prove his claims and McDonald was lying. His attorney told the media that Wright could have disproved everything by obtaining receipts and other paperwork of his own. But because he wasn't formally charged until years later, all those records were destroyed or thrown in the garbage. It looked as though the mastermind was about to get away with murder. But in May 1989, the 5th District Court of Appeal in Daytona Beach ruled that Hutchison was wrong. Wright was ordered to stand trial. McDonald again was a key witness for the state. On March 1, 1990, six weeks shy of the nine-year anniversary of Clemente's murder, Wright was convicted. Jurors recommended life in prison. Wright later died behind bars in May 2008. He was 74 years old. 
McDonald spent the last years of his life in a federal penitentiary in Georgia. Ventura died of natural causes in January 2014. He was 77 years old and was the second oldest inmate on death row when he died. Robert Clemente's parents were from Albany, New York. They took his body back home to be buried. His father worked on sports copy desks for two newspapers. He told the media after the verdicts that he felt like he had just gone 15 rounds with Joe Lewis, but the pursuit of justice was finally over. The elder Clemente was so enraged by the way Ventura went free, he wrote letters to both the governors of Illinois and Florida, as well as to numerous elected officials in both states, urging them to put into place stricter guidelines for bail. He was very appreciative of the Volusia County Sheriff's Office for their persistence. So was Jorgensen. She was also among the witnesses who testified during the trials. She got a small sense of relief and satisfaction knowing that she could contribute to justice being served. The news of Clemente's murder was traumatic for her and for others who knew him well. We were like a family there at the marina. You know, we had all of us um, between the marina itself and then we had a, a bar, snack bar per se. We were all one big group. We all did, um, they, like I said, when Bob was off, they all did things together. And so it wasn't like we were just um, employer employees. We all were one big family. I don't know. I just, there was, yeah, there was a lot of emptiness to all of us. We were all shooken up together and upset. Thank you for listening. Join me next week when I discuss the story of the Lords of Chaos, an eight-member group of misfits that aimed to create disorder across Fort Myers. On April 30th, 1996, on a night when they had set out to vandalize a school, they wound up committing murder. Among my guests for that episode will be former Fort Myers News press columnist Sam Cook. Join us then. Find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.holt at news jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Mm-hmm.